it's not the full menu. It's a snack-sized portion of Chef-Timony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Lately, I've been thinking about writing on food. Not so much doing it, although I do a bit of that. More just about food writing generally. There's a lot of it out there, and with social media, there's a whole lot of it out there. Some of it, much of it, is not that good. It's like anything else, I suppose. Low barriers to entry create a lot of less-than-great content. But just like everything else, I suppose food writing is the same here, too. There are people creating wonderful, inviting, meaningful, revelatory stuff, which is to say, really good writing. Today, I'm going to share snippets from four writers with you. Four writers I really like. Two are old, as in really old, long dead, actually, and two are young. Two have left their legacies behind them, and the other two are building theirs, and I'm going to toggle back and forth between the old and the new. Oh, and although we don't talk a lot about law on the show, we certainly do talk a lot about lawyers, and we talk to a lot of lawyers. So on that side of things, I've just started reading a book called Charged, and it's written by Emily Bazelon. Emily is an adjunct professor of law at Yale University, and she is also one of three hosts of the really excellent Slate Political Gabfest podcast. I highly recommend it. It's actually one of the two podcasts that inspired me to start Cheftimony. The other one is called Vital Vegas, which has very little to do with chefs or with law. But I love Vegas, so what can I say? Anyway, Emily's book addresses a really interesting question in the U.S. justice system these days, and that is the incredible power that rests in the hands of prosecutors. I've just started into the book, and I'm really looking forward to getting back to it. For now, though, let's get back to the food. If I had to recommend one book on food, one example of great food writing, that's actually a really easy question to answer. It's got a wonderful title. It's called The Physiology of Taste or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy. It was published in 1825 and it was written by, and here you're going to have to forgive the limits of my Canadian high school French, it was written by Jean-Anthelme Briat-Savarin. So there you go, Briat Savarin ain't just a cheese. It is also the name of the author of arguably the most important book ever written on the subject of food. Briat Savarin is the one who said, tell me what you eat and I shall tell you what you are. So here's a little bit of what the New York Times had to say about the book in a 1972 article. The Physiology of Taste first appeared in 1825, but it is really a book of 18th century pleasures composed by the only philosoph of food. A modern cookbook may begin with a list of kitchen equipment or an explanation of basic cooking techniques. Briat Savarin begins with a meditation on the senses. A modern cookbook may tell how to fry an egg or fish. Briat Savarin proposes a theory of frying. Only then does Briat Savarin feel the reader is ready to learn specifically how to fry an egg or fish. So there you go. That's a bit of what the New York Times had to say about it. But today I'm not going to read actually from the physiology of taste. What I am going to do is read a little from the book's best known translator from French to English, and that is MFK Fisher. Mary Frances Kennedy Fisher. She was an American writer. She lived from 1908 to 1992, and she wrote 27 books in her lifetime. I think she's not just a great food writer. She's a great writer who happens to love food and to write about it often and well. I recommend her work really, really highly as well. Just pick up one of her books and you'll enjoy it. 
The other uh, old writer is A.J. Liebling, and he's even older than M.F.K. Fisher. He lived from 1904 to 1963. He wrote extensively on a whole range of subjects, and often that was for the New Yorker magazine. He writes brilliantly on boxing, for example, which is another subject I love, but again, not much to do with chefs or lawyers. On the food front, though, he's got lots of great things to say, and I'll share a piece of his essay called Just Enough Money. And the modern writers. I've got two of them, and each of them you've heard from before here on the Chef Demoni podcast. There's Jenny Dorsey. Jenny is a New York-based chef and artist. Fascinating. Listen to episode 8 of the podcast, and you'll learn much more about Jenny. And I'm going to read just a couple of snippets, and I'll post a link to the whole thing from a fantastic essay she wrote and published in the online magazine Narratively. And it's called, Yes, This Meal is Supposed to Make You Uncomfortable. And the second modern writer, again, uh, has been on the podcast, and this is Sital Savla. She was on episode 10 of Chef Demoni. She's a London-based food writer. She has a digital marketing and advertising background, but she's recent, recently transitioned into a full-time freelance writing career. And as she says, she now practically lives online. She publishes a bunch of stuff, including great restaurant reviews. So I'm going to give, again, snippets from two of her restaurant reviews that I found really, really well written. All right. Let's go now to the first of our four authors. Join me for an extract from MFK Fisher. I'm going to read two short extracts from two essays. These are both in her book called Serve It Forth. The first one is in the chapter called Meals for Me. Here are a couple of the paragraphs that I think are particularly delightful. When shall we live, if not now? asked Seneca before a table laid for his pleasure and his friends. It is a question whose answer is almost too easily precluded. When indeed we are alive, and now? When else live, and how more pleasantly than supping with sweet comrades? And then I'm skipping ahead a few pages into these paragraphs. For my own meals, I like simplicity above all. I like newness in what I serve, perhaps because any interest I thus stir in my fellow diners is indirect flattery of myself. I like leisure. I like a mutual ease. For this reason, I prefer not to have among my guests two people or more of any sex who are in the first wild tremors of love. It is better to invite them after their new passion has settled, has solidified into a quieter reciprocity of emotions. It is also a waste of good food to serve it to new lovers. Dining partners, regardless of gender, social standing, or the years they've lived, should be chosen for their ability to eat and drink with the right amount of abandon and restraint. They should enjoy good food and look upon its preparation and its degustation as one of the human arts. They should relish the accompanying drinks, whether they be ale from a bottle on a hillside or the ripe bouquet of a Chamberton 1919 and a great crystal globe on finest damask. And above all, friends should possess the rare gift of sitting. They should be able, no eager, to sit for hours, three, four, six, over a meal of soup and wine and cheese, as well as one of twenty fabulous courses. Then, with good friends of such attributes, and good food on the board, and good wine in the pitcher, we may well ask, when shall we live, if not now? All right, now turning to the first of the two modern writers, let's go to London, to Sital Savla of Savla Fair. And I've got a couple of brief excerpts, and I'll put links, of course, in the show notes to uh, two restaurant reviews. The first is the Holborn Dining Room, one I'm absolutely determined to get to when we visit London, hopefully in the spring of next year. And this is how Sital starts her restaurant review of Holborn Dining Room. 
Their proximity aside, there are usually other reasons why we love our favorite local restaurants. You know that a warm welcome awaits on arrival. Both the surroundings and menu are comfortingly familiar, and you're always made to feel at home. In spite of its central London location in the glamorous but not gaudy Rosewood Hotel, Holborn Dining Room has successfully captured this lovely local vibe. Since the brasserie opened in 2013, many column inches have been dedicated to executive chef Callum Franklin's awesome ability to turn flour, water, and butter into edible art. A quick scroll through his Instagram feed proves that pies, which were once seen as stodgy and globally ridiculed, can be pretty and popular. With latticed patterns inspired by mathematics-loving Dutch artist M.C. Escher and traditional British fillings, these pies pull in even more crowds thanks to an on-site pie room. Unlike many creations that are widely revered on social media yet end up tasting of PR hype, sponsored endorsements, and wasted cash, these are worth writing home about. All right, and then second is the Midsummer House restaurant in Cambridge, and the review starts this way. Garlic isn't an ingredient that you expect to see on a dessert menu. Okay, this is a creative two Michelin starred menu, but it's still momentarily confusing especially when it's served as a foam with a classic apple tart tatin. The French are known and teased for their love of garlic, but surely even they would consider this to be extreme envelope pushing? Glazed chicken wings, for starters, also catches you by surprise. Welcome to Midsummer House. Fine dining is traditionally associated with lengthy tasting menus, ramrod straight waiters, and cavernous rooms with the atmosphere of a wake. I can't comment on what Midsummer House was like before its refurbishment earlier this year, but we were warmly welcomed. We were congratulated on our anniversary and had a signed card waiting on our table. When we explained that we were celebrating our friendship, not a romantic relationship, the maitre d's expression was priceless. So I love both of those restaurant reviews. They go on, of course, and I'll provide the links to them. Uh, But it's just wonderfully, refreshingly good writing on restaurants. So I commend you to Sital's site. She also writes fearlessly on some less happy topics. She writes on mental health issues in the culinary industry. She tackles that, and I think it's an important issue to tackle. And recently, Sital has started sharing her own deeply personal experiences with IVF, which I find to be incredibly brave, not to mention incredibly giving to other people who may be experiencing similar difficult experiences. So I've got nothing but respect for Sital and great things to say about her writing, and I recommend you check it out. Okay, Now, let's go back to the old, and here we've got an excerpt from A.J. Liebling. This comes from an anthology called Just Enough Liebling, and that, of course, uh, title comes, or is a take on his essay, Just Enough Money. So I'm going to flip to that now, I hope. Yep, there we go. After Paris the First, we've got Just Enough Money. And this is what he says. If, as I was saying before I digress, the first requisite for writing well about food is a good appetite, the second is to put in your apprenticeship as a feeder. When you have enough money to pay the check, but not enough to produce indifference to the size of the total. The optimum financial position for a serious apprentice feeder is to have funds in hand for three more days with a reasonable but not certain prospect of reinforcements thereafter. The student at the Sorbonne waiting for his remittance, the newspaper man waiting for his salary, the freelance writer waiting for a check that he has caused to believe is in the mail, are all favorably situated to learn. It goes without saying that it is essential to be in France. 
Eating is highly subjective, and the man who accepts say-so in youth will wind up in bad and over-touted restaurants in middle age, ordering what the maitre d'hôtel suggests. He will have been guided to them by food snob publications, and he will fall into the habit of drinking too much before dinner to kill the taste of what he has been told he should like, but doesn't. The reference room where I pursued my own first earnest researcher researches as a feeder without the crippling handicap of affluence was the Restaurant des Beaux-Arts on the Rue Bonaparte in 1926-27. I was a student in a highly generalized way at the Sorbonne, taking targets of opportunity for study. Eating soon developed into one of my major subjects. The franc was at 26 to the dollar, and the researcher, if he had only a certain sum, say six francs to spend, soon established for himself whether, for example, a half bottle of Tavelle Superieure at three and a half francs, and a braised beef heart and yellow turnips and two and a half, gave him more or less pleasure than a contrefilet of beef at five francs and a half bottle of ordinaire at one. He might find that he liked the heart with its strong, rich flavor and odd texture nearly as well as the beef, and that since the Tavelle was overwhelmingly better than the cheap wine, he had done well to order the first pair. Or he might find that he had so much preferred the generous, sanguine contrefilet that he could accept the undistinguished picrat instead of the Tavelle. As in a bridge tournament, the learner played duplicate hands, making the opposite choice of fare the next time the problem presented itself. It was seldom as simple as my example, of course, because a meal usually included at least an hors d'oeuvre and a cheese, and there was a complexity of each to choose from. The arrival in season of fresh asparagus or venison further complicated matters. In the first case, the investigator had to decide what course to omit in order to fit the asparagus in, and in the second, whether to forgo all else in order to afford venison. A rich man faced with this simple, simple sumptuary dilemma would have ordered both the Tavelle and the contrefilet. He would then never know whether he liked Beefheart, or whether an ordinaire wouldn't do him as well as something better. There are people to whom wine is merely an alcoholized sauce, although they may have sensitive palates for meat or pastries. When one considers the millions of permutations of foods and wines to test, it is easy to see that life is too short for the formulation of dogma. Each eater can establish but a few general principles that are true only for him. Our hypothetical rich client might even have ordered a pomard because it was listed at a higher price than the Tavelle, and because he was more likely to be acquainted with it. He would then never have learned that a good Tavelle is better than a fair to middling pomard, better than a fair to middling almost anything, in my opinion. In student restaurants, renowned wines like pomard were apt to be mediocre specimens of their kind, since the customers could never have afforded the going prices of the best growths in years. A man who is rich in his adolescence is almost doomed to be a dilettante at table. This is not because all millionaires are stupid, but because they are not impelled to experiment. In learning to eat, as in psychoanalysis, the customer, in order to profit, must be sensible of the cost. A.J. Liebling, he writes wonderfully on food, as I hope that convinced you, uh, and wonderfully on boxing, among many other topics. Check him out. A.J. Liebling, a great starting point is this anthology, Just Enough Liebling. Okay, so let's go now to Chef Jenny Dorsey and her piece, published, as I said, in Narratively, and it is called, Yes, This Meal is Supposed to Make You Uncomfortable. Again, I'm just going to give a few snippets from this piece, and I encourage you to follow the link and read the whole thing. It's very much worth a read. It starts this way, with a question asked of Chef Jenny Dorsey. What kind of food do you make? 
I'm inspecting the inside of a convection oven when the event manager asks this seemingly benign question from across the room. She's knee-deep in event planning knickknacks, picture frames, wire hangers, misfit chairs, and barely paying attention, just trying to make friendly conversation. I stumble over myself as countless past menus and dishes and memories blur together in an incoherent mess. I think about how simple it is to ask, how difficult it is to answer. I pick the easy answer. New American with Asian influences. No matter how many times I say it, it feels foreign, like a shoe that doesn't quite fit. Cool, she replies. So I'm taking a dot 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 here and jumping into the paragraph on the fifth course. The clock at the pass blinks 9.17pm as I serve the fifth course. The dish is my interpretation of shame, I explain, dovetailing with my visceral feeling of disgust at our imprinted cultural hierarchies of which foods matter, which do not. The servers bring out metal lunchboxes, two at a time, and arrange them on the table as plates. Inside, each one bears a sticker that reads, Hello, my name is Disgusting. The dish uses many of the ingredients I once frantically disassociated myself from, now gentrified into something clever and expensive. Garlic chives, an ingredient often punitively described as smelling like farts, now generally regarded as the secret to Chinese cooking. Freshwater eel with its brick-red veins but no sweet soy to mask its, its robust flavor. They are accompanied by a mound of white snow fungus, coated in a thick green emulsion of duck tongue and peanuts, propping up toasted silkworm larvae. Entomophagy, eating insects, is so gross, yet so sustainable. A nightmare for the woke, but privileged. And then I'm going to skip way to the end of the meal and the concluding thoughts that Chef Jenny has about this. And she says this about a guest that came up and talked to her at the end of the meal. I'm cleaning up stiff pastry glaze when a guest comes up to my kitchen on his way out. He's a little tipsy, effusive, and thoughtful. I didn't know what to expect with when each course came out, he admits. The dishwasher is sloshing steadily behind me, and I shuffle and lean into that sound instead of responding. But it brought back a lot of lunchtime memories I'd chosen to forget, but maybe are worth revisiting. I smile, almost embarrassed now for being so transparent, yet thankful to be understood. We don't say too much more, but a strange and pleasant understanding emerges between us. This event was so nice, he says, as we hug goodbye. I didn't have to pretend. So there you go, Chef Jenny Dorsey on a meal that is supposed to make you uncomfortable. As I say, I'll put a link in the show notes. I encourage you to read the whole thing, to follow Jenny on Instagram where she spends a lot of time and to check out her website and her other writings as well. All right. I hope you enjoyed those writers. I would love to hear from you if you've got other food writers who you enjoy and would recommend to me and to other listeners. Please get in touch with me if you've got writer recommendations or if you've got questions or comments for the show or a chef or a lawyer you think would make an interesting guest. Just drop me a line on Instagram or on Facebook or send me an email to graham at chefdemoni.com. As always, I'm going to make my plea for ratings and reviews. They're very easy to do, Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Ratings take almost no time. It's just tap, five stars, you're done. And if you've got a bit more time, uh, please consider leaving a written review. Ratings and reviews really do help other people to find the show. Okay, I'm going to leave the food writing behind for a little while and return to Charged by Emily Bazelon. Really looking forward to finishing that book. In the meantime, I wish you a very pleasant weekend, and I'll see you next Friday right here on Chef Demonium.